Thanks for listening to the Valley Point Church Podcast. We hope it's a blessing to you. It is a great pleasure to be able to introduce to you our guest speaker today, Dr. Joe Modica from Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. Welcome back to Valley Point. This is his first time, yeah? Hey, the other two hours didn't even clap at that point, so maybe they've heard the good news. I don't know. It's great to have Dr. Modica here for the very first time in our new home as well. He's been at the middle school with us a couple of times. A real pleasure and joy to have you in our new home. One of the things that I have appreciated so much about Dr. Modica is that from a distance, from Eastern University, he has been cheering and supporting Valley Point Church. And I know that because we have students from Valley Point who attend Eastern, and I hear the things that they say that he shares with them. And in this whole process, he has been a great encouragement to me personally. As a leader, as a pastor, we shared a lunch together not too long ago, and we had a great time. And I just enjoy being with him and listening to how God is working in his life and some of the things he's doing at Eastern University. And again, he's been a great support to Valley Point Church. So it's really good to have you back today. Dr. Modic is the university chaplain and associate professor of biblical studies at Eastern. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology, a Master of Divinity, a Master of Philosophy, and a PhD in New Testament and Early Christianity Studies. That's a lot of schooling, a lot of schooling. Beyond the education, though, which is certainly his world and a deep love that he has, and you'll get to hear a little bit about that. Beyond the education, I know this about Joe. He loves God, and he loves God's word, and he loves people. And that's why we have enjoyed having him here And he's an encourager. And I think you're going to walk away from today feeling very encouraged. But you're also going to have some next steps. So that's why you have your talk notes, right? Got that? Your pen? Be sure to have that ready because today he continues our At a Cost series by talking to us about right thinking. Now, who better to talk to us about right thinking than a university professor, right? We're in for a treat Once again, will you help me welcome Dr. Modica? Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's thank you for that kind introduction. Um, I was just wondering, is there a fourth service? Because I feel like I really know what I want to say by the time the fourth service comes about. It is wonderful to be back here at Valley Point Church. It is a joy and a delight for the invitation. Um, it's amazing what, you, what I see with regards to God's faithfulness on this journey and also your obedience to God's faithfulness, and you're here. So congratulations. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. I know it's been a journey, and I know with any journey, there's always uh, little detours, bumps in the road, and so forth, but... Under the pastor's leadership, Pastor Eric and his wife, Tanya, um, I've been encouraged in my ministry at Eastern University. 
your pastor watches chapel via live stream. That's a joy to know someone that's the third person that watches. No. (laughs) But I'll take three or four. Um, Also, Tanya works at Urban Promise and teaches in the kindergarten. And I'm encouraged because that's one of the ministries that Dr. Tony Campola many decades ago began. And she's serving in that capacity wonderfully well. And we have their daughter, Clarice, at Eastern. I get a chance to see her. She's doing well in elementary education, flourishing, junior. And also she runs runs a distance in track and field. So great. I mean, really good relationship between the university and Valley Point Church. It's mutually beneficial, and I really, really thank uh, you for that. Um, When I was thinking of coming, I thought, what could I bring as a kind of church-warming gift, right? I mean, you usually bring like a house-warming gift, church-warming gift. I said, I don't know what I should get Pastor Eric. I thought, okay, and then I thought maybe something for his office that um, would be a welcoming kind of reminder of uh, Eastern University. So, Pastor, I do have a gift for you. Um, It's very coveted. There's not many of these around. But your own pennant, your own Eastern University pennant there. So let me give that to you now. <laughs> Come right. This is like graduation of sorts. <laughs> Congrats. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate that. Oh, Thanks. you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> right? I was going to bring a picture of me, but that's just a little bit. It's too much. It's just too much there. Well, we are at the time of the semester at Eastern University. It's mid-April. We began our semester in January. So mid-April, what's lurking for our students is final exams. Oh, but you know what? They actually have been talking about final exams the first day of class when I taught in an undergraduate course this semester. Reminds me of what Jesus felt like when he was with his disciples. Boy, uh, students are concerned about the right answers. They want to know Is this something I need to know about? Let me also give you an apocryphal story um, written as if the disciples were college students in the time of Jesus, as disciples were college students. Here's the story. Jesus took his disciples up the mountain and gathered them around him, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who suffer. When these things happen, rejoice, for your reward will be great in heaven. And Simon Peter said, do we have to write this down? And Philip asked, is this going to be on the test? And John questioned, would you repeat that, Jesus, just slower? And Andrew remarked, John the Baptist's disciples don't have to learn this stuff. And Matthew said, huh? And Judas inquired, what does this have to do anyway with real life? And then one of the religious leaders, an expert in the law, observed, I don't see any of this in your syllabus. Where's the study guide and will there be any extra credit? And Thomas, who unfortunately had missed the sermon, came to Jesus privately and said, did we do anything really important today? And Jesus wept. Okay. This morning, I've been tasked with the topic about right thinking at a cost. 
What a wonderful series. And actually, I viewed at least one of the sermons that Pastor gave um, on the topic. So this is an important series for Christian discipleship. So the, the, the goal here is, what does it mean to follow Jesus in a world, a world in which there are people thinking all the time, and there are different issues, some of them complicated situations we find ourselves as we faithfully follow Jesus in this world. So it's about right thinking at a cost, and it will cost us something. Thinking cost. If anything, it costs you maybe time away from any electronic device, unless you read and study on electronic. You might have to, the discipline of reading and so forth. It may be at a cost in which you'll have to actually carve out time in a very busy schedule to commit, commit to doing the right thinking. But I'll tell you what t- this morning what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to talk about right theology. So this is not a message on right theology. There is a place for a conversation about Christian doctrine and and belief. Of course there is. And the church has given us gifts like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. These are gifts to the church to show us that to be a Christian, you need to believe certain things. And I always look at creeds as, as boundaries for our faith and not barriers. So we look at these creeds, they're really important, and we live into the creeds as the church, and this church is a wonderful example, as the church helps guide us through right beliefs. But that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm going to talk about right thinking. Right thinking at a cost. Because I, I do believe that Christians should be on the forefront of right thinking. And we do have some obstacles along the way, and sometimes there's some impediments. So I really want to uh, process this with you. I've been thinking, no pun intended, about right thinking for ever since I got the invitation. So this is somewhat undigested you know, material, meaning I'm still working through it, but it's a very important topic for me, not just because I work at a university and I'm surrounded by people who think a lot, but also because it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter about a degree. We're not talking about earning a degree here. It doesn't mean Um, that you have to take classes at Eastern University or anywhere. It's about how do we discipline ourselves to help ourselves in thinking. Because we all have been given a gift, the gift of our minds, the gift of our intelligence. So again, I'm not looking at a degree here. I'm looking at a way in which we live in the world. Okay? So that's where we're going to go this morning. What I like to do is go right to the scripture text. If you have your Bibles, we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Matthew this morning, a very familiar verse, but I want to uh, go right to Matthew 22. If you have a Bible or a device, we'll take a look at this text. This is a familiar text, right? You probably have seen this or heard this text used, um, and I'll try to set it in context, but I will say this. Jesus, to me, is the smartest person that ever lived. Let me say that again. And this is not my own thought. This is Dallas Willard's thought. Jesus is the smartest person, the most intelligent person that ever lived. So let's think about the implications. If you call Jesus Lord and Savior this morning, how could he be dumb? I mean, like, all right, he's Lord and Savior, and he's not quite bright. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So by us saying we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are also saying that because God became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus' teaching 
is the most intelligent way of understanding human flourishing that I can think of. So when I look at Jesus' teaching, I'm not just looking for salvation, so to speak. I'm looking about how to live in the world now, right? We want to live well now as followers of Jesus. So I'm going to read the text and then try to set it a bit in context this morning, because I think it has something to teach us about right thinking at a cost. <clears throat> when the Pharisees heard that he, being Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Thanks be to God. Here we have... Matthew, the gospel writer, the first gospel that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, an original disciple of Jesus. That means that Jesus called Matthew. Uh, remember, Matthew was also a tax collector, so please, it's just an announcement, today is tax day. So be sure, you have some, a few more hours left, get your taxes in. But, you know, Matthew is really interesting because he portrays Jesus as a teacher. That's his motif, that's his theme. Jesus is the teacher of Israel. The other gospel writers certainly see Jesus as a teacher, but they emphasize different aspects. So in Matthew's gospel, when you read the gospel, the 28 chapters of Matthew, Jesus is shown as a teacher of Israel. Matthew believed that Jesus was the Messiah that fulfilled the story of Israel. Jesus brings things to completion. So he didn't abolish the law and the prophets, but he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. So as you read Matthew's gospel, you'll find out there's five major teaching sections that correlate with the five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. So Matthew is really structuring his gospel to make a point, to make a point. What we have here in the text is Jesus is involved at this time in Matthew, 20, it starts in 21 and continues to 23, he's involved in controversy. Do you think Jesus was a controversial figure? It seems that people thought he was. Kind of a rabble rouser, didn't always, you know, toe to the party line. So Jesus, in many ways, is embodied in these controversial episodes there. That's a cute kid there. How old is he? Three months. I have a grandson that's seven months. That's beautiful. Um, you know, it's, it's involved in controversy. So he, Jesus is involved in three controversies during this time. And this is the third, of the, uh, the third controversy that he's coming up against. They question him on the resurrection. They question him on paying taxes. And now they're questioning on the greatest commandment. So you understand the situation? Jesus is, in a sense, defending himself. Well, he's being trapped He's being put into a corner. So I want to talk about three observations that we can make from this text. But before I do, I want you to, I want you to note that lawyers in this situation are oftentimes used in, in Matthew's gospel as a foil when you're a lawyer, a teacher of the law. is kind of against Jesus. It doesn't mean that all lawyers are terrible. I know my brother's an attorney. He's a wonderful person. 
But, you know, in some ways, what, was, what Matthew is doing is showing us about what happens, and here's the point, what happens when we hold on to the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law? We can miss something when we focus simply on the letter of the law. So within Judaism, and this lawyer is a good Jew trying to work things out, I think he's a little snarky with the teacher comment, and I think he's also not testing Jesus, but the word there is actually tempt. He's trying to entrap. It's the same word uh, that Matthew uses when Jesus is thrust into the wilderness in chapter 4 when he's tempted by Satan. So it's not really, the motives are not pure here by the lawyer. But the point being that, that in Judaism at this time, there were a lot of laws, 613 of them, that Jews were, were required to kind of keep, not all in the same day, of course, but to keep in their relationship with God. 613, they got that number from 248 being the number of body parts, and 365, the days of the year. You add those two numbers together, they came up with about 613 laws in which they would use to help in their relationship with God. It was, it was out of a loving relationship with God, between God and God's people, the Jews, and they were living out their relationship with that. It's not about legalism here. It's about duty and desire. And I was mentioning before, if us Christians, we could think about it, we probably have at least 613 laws. Right? If we really drill down, we just don't have them in one place. But I'm sure we have a lot of commandments and other things we abide by, and they do add up a little bit over time. So this is the situation that we find Jesus in. The brilliance of Jesus here is that he's simplifying something and not being simplistic. He's simplifying something but not being simplistic. He wants people to know what right thinking is at a cost. Can you imagine if someone took 613 things and reduced them to two things? You might think, well, what about those other, you know, 611, right? I mean, that's a cost. You're reducing something that's very valuable to the people. But Jesus simplifies without being simplistic. And because of the brilliance, I think we can deduce at least three things from this text that might help us in our right thinking. Right thinking comes at a cost because we have to sometimes shape differently the way we think and the way we live in the world. So, the first point is, and I want to just highlight this, right thinking is an act of worship. Right thinking is an act of worship. Isn't that interesting? Love the Lord your God with what? With what? Your heart, your soul, and your mind. Your entire being. Right? Three different emphases, but the same person. It's the same entity, right? I find myself, I don't know about you, do you find yourself living lives almost in various silos or compartments? You know, we're fragmented people, right? We have our work life, our play life, our church life. You know, we we do this, we do that. And I'm wondering how much that impacts our understanding of worship. So, for instance, at Eastern University, students often will say, I'm going to Wednesday night worship, or I'm going to chapel to worship. And that's not a terrible thing to say. Thank God they're going. (laughs) It's voluntary, so they get there. I don't care what they say prior, just get there. We want you there. But you know what? We never go to worship. We are always worshiping. We are always worshiping. 
And then that's a hard thing for students to understand when they're up late at evening trying to finish the paper for me. Because 2.30 in the morning typing on a computer does not feel like an act of worship, <laughs> right? It's usually an act of, I'll never take this professor again in my life. And if I could drop the course now without penalty, I would. That's okay. But what we need to understand Jesus here is understanding our human existence as worship. Everything is worship, what we give worth to. You give worth to things, I give worth to things. And do we do that beyond the corporate setting at Valley Point Church? So I was in seminary back in the, in the 80s, not the, not the 1880s, but the 1980s. My children remind me how old I am. And I had a professor by the name of Dr. Ravi Zacharias. You may know of him. Um, I had the, the unique privilege of taking a class with him on lifestyle evangelism. So everybody was excited. Dr. Zacharias is going to be teaching this course. So we all got into the first day of class, all got into the classroom, maybe 40 or 50 of us, which was a large class. And we were in a classroom with a chalkboard. That's how long ago. There, there is such a thing as chalkboards. Check the Smithsonian Museum. I'm sure there's one there. So we all sit down, and the professor, uh, Dr. Zacharias, a few minutes late, he comes into the classroom. We're all seated, and uh, we were all ready to begin. We were excited and focused. He goes up to the chalkboard and begins to write a sentence. He writes a sentence, hits, puts a period, puts the chalk down, and sits in the first row. You know, seminarian students, I'm in my 20s. I'm thinking, oh my, I'm glad my first aid certification is not, has not expired. Maybe he's uh, ill, or maybe there's a medical crisis, or maybe he's just going to faint, or we didn't know what was happening. He just sat there. Have you ever been in awkward silence with somebody or a situation? He waited and waited and waited, and then he went up to the front of the class and explained what he wrote on the board. Can we go to that next slide, please? He wrote down, worship is coextensive with life. Then he paused, and he says, there's nothing I'm going to teach you about evangelism that you'll be able to use unless you understand worship is coextensive with life. It's everything that we do. I'm not going to teach you a formula. I'm not going to teach you the four spiritual laws or the Roman road or whatever formula is out there. He was convinced, and it, believe me, this is over 30 years ago, and I still remember it. He was convinced that worship is not something we do, but what we become. Worship is not what we do. We don't go to a worship service, but it's what we're becoming. And I think right thinking at a cost means do you see your lives, do I see my life as an act of worship wherever we are? That means at the office, in our neighborhood, uh, during times of conflict, during times of parenting. That's a hard one. <laughs> Usually when you discipline kids, you don't say, it's an act of worship. <laughs> Please, mom, I have four children, two grandchildren. It's not an act of worship, but it's supposed to be. Everything we do is an act of worship. Right thinking focuses in on that. And I think Jesus is brilliant here. He says, when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, you are worshiping. And you're doing so with the right mind. 
one of the aspects that I think is important to realize too is love. This is the second point. Right thinking has to always be motivated by love. That's the main verb that drives the whole teaching of Jesus. He doesn't say, worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Right? He doesn't say, if you can like God or like your neighbor. Right? He says, love. Right? That's the, the verb. And that verb is the verb that you're probably familiar with. This is the agape verb. Right? This is something of real volition. It has nothing to do with Hallmark cards. Right? No sentimentality here. It's not like, oh, love me, you love me, I love you. Right? And no, 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 no. This is an act of the will. Have you ever chosen to love someone you didn't like? Right? It's, it's right? You have to choose. Love is not something we always feel. Oh my, if that was the case, you know, marriage is a long journey. <laughs> right? Marriage is a long journey. Right? Any good relationship is a long journey. So you choose based on your will to love. And that's what agape love is. It's, it's uh, unconditional in the sense it's unmotivated by selfishness, right? We could love selfishly. It can look like love, but we could be selfish at the core. So right thinking involves being motivated by love, motivated by love. Too often times in my uh, connection with Christians, they seem a bit more concerned about what can fit on a bumper sticker or a poster rather than what it means to love in relationship with others. Can we show the next slide? So I was at a rally one time, and you could see that that is something that concerned me. Right? If your beliefs can fit on a sign, think harder. Folks, um, we need to think a little harder, and that's including me. Right? Uh, things have to be motivated by love. This is oftentimes motivated by getting out a tweet so you can show somebody they're wrong, or it could be done in a very different motivated sense. One of the greatest theologians <clears throat> that ever lived is St. Augustine in the 5th century. You may have heard of him, right? He's written The City of God, City of Man, Confessions. And when I read Augustine years ago, something stuck with me, which I have to always remind myself, because I have a tendency to like books and to like discussions and to like learning and so forth. Just to let you know, as, as Pastor Eric said, I earned a PhD, but my wife always reminds me that means permanent head damage. <laughs> just to let you know. I just want to, uh, just this, this, don't worry about that. St. Augustine said this <clears throat> when he's talking about Christian discipleship. He said, Christian disciples are not formed by the content of our knowledge, meaning dumping knowledge into your brain, but by what we love. We are what we love, St. Augustine says. We are what we love. We're lovers, friends. We're not just thinkers. We're not brains on a stick. We're not just thinkers. Even if you think hard, right thinking at any cost means we have to ask ourselves, what do we love? What do we love? And that's something we need to really inspect in our own lives. Not just what do we love, but who do we love? And that shapes our understanding of what Jesus is getting at. Right action, a right thinking, I should say, is a form of worship. Right thinking is also motivated or fueled by love. It's because we're lovers. And, and Jesus is brilliant because he says, love God 
and love others using a word that informs us that we need to know what is it that we love. Because you can know a lot of things and not love anyone, right? We can know a lot of things and not have any love for another. When I was in college uh, in the 1970s, I was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and that was a, a good place for me in my own Christian witness. And it was a large group. I went to a large you know, uh, college in Queens, New York. As a matter of fact, uh, truth be told, that uh, I was a first-year student and Jerry Seinfeld was a fourth-year student. I never got a chance to know him, but if you watch Seinfeld, you'll see him come out with a Queens College t-shirt or other paraphernalia. When my wife and I, who my wife also graduated Queens, and so we were watching the episode of Seinfeld back in the 90s, and she, we looked and said, my wife said, oh, that must be the Queens College in, in the UK. It couldn't have been the one that we actually gone to, but lo and behold, Jerry Seinfeld did graduate from Queens College, City University of New York. But the point being, when I was in college, I was part of InterVarsity Fellowship, and we had this young person there, one a college student, who knew everything about the Bible. It was amazing. You'd almost like poke him, and he'd be able to quote entire chapters of, of Scripture. He, he knew where ver, uh, words were. He could do a word study almost by, by in his mind. He knew theology, knew theologians. And then I recognized something a few days, weeks after. Nobody liked him. <laughs> Nobody, including me. I didn't like him. And again, maybe that's because of my own sinfulness and lack of uh, caring, which is true. But maybe it's because that knowledge is not equated with love. Right? You could just be spewing out scripture, you could be spewing out theology, but do you actually listen to someone is an act of love. Listening is loving. Do you listen? Do I listen? Do I understand that right thinking at a cost means I might need to listen more than speak? All right, we need to speak. There is a time to share the hope that is in you, that's, uh, that's in Christ Jesus. We know that. But what about, about listening and being able to understand that? And then third and final point. So we have right thinking is an act of worship. Right thinking is fueled or motivated by love. And third, and this might be obvious from the passage, right thinking at a cost involves our neighbor. We have to serve our neighbor. One of the great things that were t was, was one of the great advice that was given to me by a mentor of mine in seminary, he said, Joe, if you ever go on to graduate school, um, which I eventually did, he said, always remember that every book you read, every paper you write, every journal article that you, you try to put in a peer review journal, every book that you may write is always for other people. Always for other people. It's not to build a resume. We're not here to build resumes. We're not here to build Christian resumes. Love is what we do in service to our neighbor. And that's right thinking. When is the last time we thought that our neighbor is inseparable to understanding God's love? That's what Jesus doesn't give us any option. If you look at the text, they're inseparable. It's not like you do one thing first and then second comes. They're likewise. It's identical. Jesus doesn't separate. It's almost like in the beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It's inseparable. That if you don't give mercy to others, you're not going to receive mercy. Well, what about the Lord's Prayer? Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
right? Forgiveness is often reciprocal. We need to do it to understand it. To love God, we need to right thinking at a cost. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves in a way that is inseparable from the love that we have with God. Those things are inseparable. I know that I prefer some days to love God more than my neighbor because it's easier. <laughs> I don't have to go outside. <laughs> right? I mean, there are some neighbors we don't like. Right? And they happen to always live in the neighborhood next to us. But you know what? We don't have a choice of who is our neighbor. But we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Let me give just a couple of application points, if I may. These are things that I'm thinking about. This is not the only suggestion. These are not the only suggestions of how to be a, a right-thinking Christian, right? These are just my suggestions, so take them for what they're worth. But I want to just make some suggestions here. The first thing that I think will help us to, be, to have more right-thinking at a cost is, and this is going to sound very uh, selfish from an academic of sorts, is that we need to see reading as a spiritual discipline. We need to do more reading as Christians. I know that's hard. I mean, of course, the scripture, the Bible, you ought to be reading devotionally. And I think you should be discussing the Bible as often in, in groups. But I'm thinking, when is the last time any of us read a book that helped inform our thinking Christianly? When is the last time we read a book from maybe a listing of Christian classics that would help inform our lives? So I'm a big proponent of reading. I know that seems a little bit counterintuitive in a culture that is a lot of image-driven. But let me recommend, um, I'm gonna, uh, there's a book that I want to recommend here that helps, and I'm going to send to Pastor Eric the listing. But Renovari came out a few years ago. Renovari is an organization that helps with Christian formation of churches and people. They do conferences. My very good friend is the president of Renovari. It was started by Richard Forster a number of years ago. And they recommend 25 books Every Christian should read. Now, that's a, quite a title. That doesn't leave anything for um, doubt. That's like 25 books. Now, obviously, their listing, their listing is their listing. And I'm assuming there might be other books along the way there, too. But let me give to you, let me give to you some of their choices. They mentioned St. Augustine's Confessions. How about Dante's? The Divine Comedy, which I'm hoping to read again this summer. The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. How about C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity? Those kind of books. And again, it's not a competition, but what if you read one book every four months? That'd be three books a year. And maybe you got it together in small groups, maybe over in Starbucks or coffee, and you had a conversation about what you're reading. And maybe that could help with right thinking. One thing you'll notice when I send the list to Pastor Eric is that all the 25 people they recommend in the book, they have one thing in common. They're all dead. There's something about dead Christians that's just so alluring, so attractive. I like dead people. I like dead people. I mean, dead. when you have a book that's been around for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, you might want to take a look at it. You might want to take a look at it. I might want to take a look at it. So I just want to encourage you along those ways. Here's a quick pop quiz as we wrap up here. I want you to tell me who said this. I'm going to give you a quote and just tell me who said this. One of my great regrets is that I have not studied enough. I wish I had studied more and preached less. P. 
people have pressured me into speaking to groups when I have should when I have should been when I have, I should have been studying and preparing. Donald Barnhouse said if he knew the Lord was coming in three years, he would spend two of them studying and one preaching. I'm trying to make that up. Who said this? Billy Graham. Sounds like a Spurgeon quote, but it's Billy Graham. Billy Graham, the greatest 20th century evangelist, says he wished he would have spent more time studying, reading, thinking. And he was brilliant in his own way. I wonder what implications that has for us. Another observation. So reading is a spiritual discipline. Another observation is we need to try to avoid, although fellowship is wonderful, we need to try to avoid only being with people that think exactly like us. <laughs> I call that thinking tribes or echo chambers. I want to encourage you that there's a lot of Christians that disagree politically, disagree on some social issues, but yet we need to be in conversation, not to lose our convictions, to maybe, but also maybe help us think rightly about some things. You know, there's a, a Peanuts, a peanuts uh, a cartoon that I always refer to when I speak on this topic, if we can go to it, I think it captures exactly what I think ought to happen. Right? <clears throat> Have you ever been in a conversation where you entered saying, I could be wrong? <laughs> Wouldn't that change our relationships with each other if you went into the conversation not saying, I'm going to show him or her their errors of their way? Or rather, I'm going to go in and listen. I want to hear their perspective, but I want to also share my convictions and so forth. This does not mean you don't have Christian convictions. It doesn't mean you believe anything and everything. But it does mean we ought to avoid people that just believe exactly like us. We might learn something there too. The famous columnist William Raspberry, who died in 2012 at 76 years old, he won the Pulitzer Prize uh, for the Washington Post for commentary, has a wonderful uh, column that he wrote back in... Uh, 2005. I encourage you to Google it. 2005, William Raspberry, and he wrote a column called On Civil Disagreement. On Civil, Our Civil Disagreement. He was lamenting the terrible political discourse that we have. And that was back in 2005. <laughs> we got 13 years of even working on uh, political discourse. So, he says this in the column. William Raspberry says, the most thoughtful people I know secretly believe both sides. The most thoughtful people I know secretly believe both sides. And what does he mean by that? That people are duplicitous? No. That people can't make up their mind or something? No. But that any good conversation, any way of right thinking at a cost will allow us to be able to understand the perspective of another. Even when we disagree. And there's nothing worse than Christians, I'm thinking now of the church, of not caring for one another with our words, right? I mean, we're Christians, but we talk about other Christians so flippantly, and, or other denominations, or if you didn't vote for this person, how could, right? I mean, there is time for, for conversation, but to, 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 to not take care of our words I wonder if we could learn something about why that person voted that way or why that person believes such a thing. 
Are we available to God in a loving way, particularly our neighbor, to understand that? Lastly, and this is not because of um, uh, Pastor Kohler asked me to say this, but I will say it nonetheless, about right thinking, right, an application at a cost. Does Valley Point Church have a sabbatical policy for their pastor or anybody in pastoral leadership? You know what a sabbatical is? It means a time, a, 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 a constructive time away from a congregation or sometimes at a university for a professor in which they can take a real substantive time to read, to write, to pray, to journal, to take a class or two, to do things to rejuvenize, uh, rejuvenate themselves for the work of ministry. Maybe you do. I don't know this, and no one asked me to say that, but I was thinking, I wonder how important you think, think you know, right thinking for your pastor is. And that doesn't mean he's not doing right thinking, but the, we live in a world that is very complex and complicated, and we need the resources given to us by God and given to us by others to help us think through it. Final quote, and then I'll pray. This is by Richard Forster, who started um, the Renovari um, organization. From his book, Celebration of Discipline, it's 40 years in print. Could you imagine 40 years in print? But Richard Forster is still alive, but you can read that book. <laughs> it's, it's sold over 2 million copies. The Celebration of Discipline is a book we use at the university. It talks about spiritual disciplines, how to use disciplines as a way of conforming ourselves to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he says. First sentence of the book. First sentence sets the tone. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people, for deep people. We need more deep people, and we need to start in the church. We need deep-thinking Christians in the church. It doesn't mean it's easy. It comes at a cost. It may even give you, you might have to take a risk to be with people that you disagree with. It may mean that you read something that you disagree about, but you're willing to enter into it at a cost. It may cost you time. I have to look at my time, how I spend it. I have to, and I, and I do this for a living, <laughs> right? I have to look and say, Lord, am I a good steward of the time you've given me? Especially with regards to right thinking, reading, and, 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 and so forth. My prayer is that Valley Point Church continue to be a beacon of right thinking at a cost in this community as it ripples out, and even throughout the entire state of Pennsylvania, country, the, the enormous impact you're already having. And be willing to think with each other and think with people who may disagree with you too. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your teaching that allows us to see life in its fullest. May we be people who learn how to love you and love others like ourselves. May we be faithful even when times are difficult and when we count the cost, we do so knowing the sacrifice is worth our formation because of the love you have shown to us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you call Valley Point Church home or would like to make a donation, please go to valleypointchurch.com slash online giving. If you're in need of prayer, we would love to serve you in that way. Send us a message at prayer at valleypointchurch.com. Be blessed.